0: Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg, voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners who joined from around the world um, to listen to the words of wisdom from our authors. And today, joining me from San Francisco is Ben Parr. And Ben has written a new book called Captivology, um, The Science of Capturing People's Attention. Good day to you, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Great, great. I appreciate you taking the time. You've written a fascinating book, and for my listeners, you can learn more about Ben and watch some videos and interviews he's done and talks at www.benparr.com. Ben is an award-winning journalist, entrepreneur, investor, and expert on attention. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Dominate Fund, a venture capital firm. Um, was the co-editor and editor-at-large of Mashable and served as a columnist for CNET. Uh, Ben was named one of the top ten tech journalists in the world by Say Media and named to the Forbes 30 Under 30. And as I said, he's joining us from the Bay Area. Well, Ben, you have a statement that you make in one of your videos, and you state that the attention is the fundamental currency of the modern economy. Why do you believe that we live in a world today where the people are moving so fast? It's almost like they have ADD and ADHD combined, and they're like Doug the dog in the movie Up, as you mentioned in your video.
1: Well, we—it's because we're exposed to so much information, and we're creating so much content more than ever, and we're not—we've never been prepared for it. We've never been trained for it. We. Um, don't know how to handle it. So in 1986, we were exposed to about 40, 42 newspapers worth of information on a daily basis, according to one site. By 2006, that number jumped to 176. And I got a number from Microsoft when I was there about a month ago, and they told me um, the average person's exposed to about seven DVDs worth of information on a daily basis. And So... Clearly, the amount of information we're being exposed to is increasing on an exponential basis. Uh, how do you manage that? How do you um, – and for most people, it's difficult. You know, They get distracted. They try to multitask. Multitasking doesn't help the problem. And so you have this multiple compound problem of, uh, of too many things to pay attention to and us having not the right habits to control it. And so the result is that our attention is more divided and it's more difficult than ever to – uh, to break out from the crowd to captivate your audience
0: so uh, at one, on one sense Captivology is about uh, helping entrepreneurs and individuals understand how to capture attention and keep the attention and as you said we're being exposed to so much and that's, that's a lot for anybody to intake uh, let alone to pay attention to and you speak about this thing called a disruption trigger in your book um, what? How is that such an effective means of capturing the attention? I mean, if we continue to stay, as I would say, at, at one level mindless about what's going on versus being extremely mindful, um, how is this disruption trigger going to help us uh, get through and capture the attention? And why does it work so well? So the
1: disruption trigger is one of the seven psychological triggers. I I discussed in my book, and the big thing is that we automatically pay attention to the people and things that violate our expectations in some way. It originates as a defense response, you know. If we When we were hunter-gatherers and something was out of place when we were scanning the horizon, it was most likely either food or a potential predator, you know. It could have been Saberkin Tiger. Um, and luckily now, when I go out of my apartment, I don't Run into the tigers, but we still have the same issues. And so you could leverage that for, you could leverage that kind of psych, that psychology for whatever you do. You, you see um, brands use it in things sometimes like shotgun campaigns or in counterintuitive campaigns. And that's part of how it works. Like Patagonia did it a few years ago with a campaign called Don't Wear This Jacket. And they're a clothing company, and their entire premise of the campaign was don't buy your stuff. And there was a little bit, they went a little bit deeper into their values and how they didn't want you to buy stuff unnecessarily to protect the environment. And that really resonated with people by telling people not to buy their stuff. The more yeah. people bought their stuff, their sales doubled in less than a year. Um, and, it's that dis- and it's those disruptions that we pay attention to. And it's a very powerful trigger on attention. You just have to use it correctly.
0: Mhm. It was interesting. You mentioned that I happened to be coming back from an Illuminate Film Festival yesterday, and I and and I actually drove over to Sedona, and the guy had a sign on the back of his truck. He says, "If you don't like trucks, stop buying stuff." And I thought it was it really got my attention because the reality of his statement was, "Hey, look, you know we're the guys that move your stuff around. If you really don't like us, and you know you've been just quit buying stuff." Um, you tell a great story about a world-famous world, world famous Joshua Bell playing a violin in the subway, attempting to attract the attention of listeners. And then you contrast that with a woman by the name of Susan Kieser, I think it is, who does the same thing but ends up attracting many more listeners, selling her CDs, playing in um, in the park, and so on in New York. Why is it that Susan was so much more successful at capturing the attention of her audience versus Joshua Bell, who's this world-famous a person who usually brings in uh, hundreds of thousands of people over his career to listen to uh, his playing.
1: It's all about the frame of reference. And so, uh, you know, Joshua Bell, when he did this famous experiment with the Washington Washington Post, had less than 10 people stop to listen to him for more than a few seconds. And it's because um, he didn't know the frame of reference of his audience. He was playing... Um, right next to the entrance during rush hour. And rush hour is the worst time to play. Any uh, street violinist or street musician will tell you that because people aren't in the frame of reference to listen to you. Don't They don't have the time. They're rushing. And if you're right at the entrance, they don't have time to absorb your music if they're going by or to stick around. Susan Kessler is more in the center. she finds long hallways um, after rush hour, but before 3 o'clock, if she's going to be playing in a subway, she'll be... Um, Playing in these long hallways, and it gives her audience 15 to 20 seconds to absorb her music before um, they get to her, making them more likely to stop and listen. And so she's learned over trial and error over the couple of years the best frames of reference for audience, which is why she's so much more effective at captivating her audience. And it's that frame of reference and understanding your audience and this frame of reference that's really important.
0: And that's what's important if you're going to capture the attention and understand the frame of reference. And one of the things that I think was important out of the book is the three types of attention. You talk about immediate, short, and long-term attention. Um, that they are different at each stage. Why for the listening audience out there today, my listeners who are interested in capturing attention, have websites, are using social media, are building uh, new products or services and trying to capture attention, is it so important that we understand each of these types of attention?
1: So the three stages of attention are you have to fundamentally understand them if you want to have a chance to... Uh, to captivate others because because under it's understanding that psychology that gives us the capability to um, to captivate others. So with the three stages of attention: immediate attention being our automatic short-term focus, our short attention, our short-term our short-term focus is when we switch from unconscious to conscious attention, and long attention, which is our long-term interest. And what I teach is that. You, as a person trying to captivate others, whether you're a teacher or an entrepreneur or a business person, have to walk your audience through all three stages because you can't. It's One, you can't skip all the way to long attention. And two, it's not enough to you know, get people to watch your commercial or listen to your campaign. You have to convert them to customers and users. And so uh, I talk about in the book how to... How to identify each of these stages and how they work, you know, fundamentally at a, at a memory level, at a brain level. And then which triggers are going to be more effective for which stages of attention. But the big thing is to know how, is to know how and how to walk your audience through each of those stages.
0: Yeah, actually utilizing and understanding each of those stages is important. And along with that, you've identified seven key psychological captivation triggers. Um, and I think it'd be good for our listening audience to know what those are and why as potentially somebody who's out there, no matter how you're doing it, whether you're that person with what you think to be, you've built this great website, or you know, you've got a, a, a marketing piece that you've developed, or... Or anything that you're doing to sell, inform, or inspire an audience in some way, um, to go from what I talk about is kind of the experience economy to an economy of basically the transformation economy. So, what, what, what? How do we capture those people? What are those seven key psychological uh, captivation triggers?
1: So, I'll briefly run them down and. We've talked a little bit about some of them already. So the first one is automaticity. It is our automatic reaction to certain stimuli, sights, colors, sounds, and especially colors. Because, uh, you know, for example, if you're a hitchhiker in the side of the road, uh, bright colors are your best option. But if you're a woman, and there's a study that actually saw this, if you're a woman, um, red is typically the best color to wear if you want to have the best chance to be picked up because of not just the contrast that red has with, uh, with dark roads and dark grass, which helps it stand out visually, but also because of the co- associations we have with red and romanticism. In fact, if you put a thick red border around a person's face, the opposite generally, that person is several points more attractive. And so you need to understand the subconscious associations we have with these different stimuli, whether it's a color or a smell. Um, the second trigger is Freibinger. We talked a little about this, how Joshua Bell um, wasn't able to frame his, wasn't able to frame his performance correctly, but Susan Ketzer was. Mm-hmm. And framing is simply that we pay attention to people, to the, to things that fall within our frame of reference. And this is a worldview that's created by our culture, by our biology, by our personal history. And it's part of the reason why, you know, we have a different reaction if we hear climate change versus global warming, if we hear, um, if we hear death tax versus estate tax. And there's such a difference between those framing effects. Mm -hmm. Uh, The third trigger is the disruption trigger. We just talked about that. Right. And how we pay attention to people and things that violate our expectations. Uh, Then there is the reward trigger. And I talk about the psychology of rewards and the dopamine system of the brain. And a big misconception a lot of people have is that dopamine creates pleasure. But what it really actually does scientifically is create motivation. It creates a desire to achieve something, to want something. And so it's all about how do you activate that system in the brain and how do you create rewards both short-term and long-term that will cultivate your audience for the right situation. Then there's reputation, which is the fact that we pay attention to reputable sources, specifically experts, authority figures in the crowd. And the research shows that we pay huge efforts towards experts almost automatically. Our brains almost shut down sometimes when we're listening to experts. And and surveys show that we trust experts over any other type of spokesperson, far more than CEOs or government officials. Um, There's the mystery trigger, which is we pay attention to, um, out of all types of storytelling, mysteries and suspenseful storytelling and stories with cliffhangers. And it comes from this compulsion for completion that we have innately. And finally, the acknowledgement trigger, which is that we pay attention to people and things that pay attention to us and provide us with validation, empathy, and understanding. And there's a whole bunch of science around that and how um, the real reasons, for example, we seek fame and we care about celebrities. It's less about narcissism and more about the desire to belong and to be validated by our friends, our peers, and by strangers.
0: And so all of these triggers are ways that, you know, combined, it's not one or the other, it could be several of these that are ingrained together, that are capturing attention. And, and you mentioned that the average person checks their cell phone about 110 times per day, and you jokingly state, for you it's probably double that, um, that actually it's not the smartphone itself that we're addicted to, but the email, the text, and the app notifications, because they grab our attention by triggering what you call the complex mechanism on our brains, that powers these motivations and desires. How is that working? Because if there's any one thing that in today's society that if there's, people could relate to, they're addicted to their electronic devices, and I would say that's probably applies to you know 80 percent of the people on the globe.
1: So yeah, you you hit the point, which is, um, and I'll explain the science a little bit further, which is it's specifically the novelty of of these notifications to present new information. We are hardwired to pay attention to new information. It's because when new new information happened in the past, again, it was something is out of place. It was a threat or it was a piece of food. New information was something we had to pay attention to. And we still have that same instinct, just not in the same, but it's not the same things giving us any information. Smartphones are a perfect medium for that. And so every text, every notification is, by definition, a new is new. And so that's kind of why we turn our heads toward why it can be so hard to captivate an audience sometimes. But you can utilize that to your advantage by um, the disruption trigger and some of these other triggers to present new and novel information uh, to your audience and show that paying attention to you is, um, is a place to gain new information. And this is something that we're looking for constantly.
0: Yeah. And it's so... Um, psychologically addicting yet, you know, like you say, appealing. So there's a great appeal there because you want that information and it's got almost like this power. It's got a spell over you, it seems to be. Now, you, you speak about a study that Dr. Fitzsimmons did. He's a marketing and psychology professor at Duke um, that he did about self-control and healthy options on the menu at McDonald's. Um, I was fascinated by what was going on there because I have one. I, I read it. It was kind of hard to believe that these people with self-control had a hard time choosing the healthy options. Can you tell us the story and the significance between balancing these intrinsic and extrinsic rewards?
1: So, in this in the study, he um, would give subjects you know he would give subjects two different types of menus. One would have Unhealthy and and less unhealthy options. You know, it's a difference between a triple Big Mac versus maybe like and fries versus I don't know a baked potato. And the he had another menu that would have these unhealthy options and a healthy option like a salad. And what he learned was that if you give people the option on a fast food menu of a healthy item they will generally be more likely to choose the unhealthiest option, um, and especially if they have high levels of self-control. It's because of something called vicarious goal fulfillment. And so think about it. You, as a person, have two conflicting goals when it comes to food. A short-term intrinsic goal is I want to eat tasty food and feel satisfied in my stomach. And a long-term intrinsic goal is I want to lose weight and be healthy and feel healthy. And so you can't usually have both, but our brains can trick ourselves into thinking we can have both. And so when you consider a healthy option, sometimes the brain th- uh, actually thinks that it has fulfilled its intrinsic reward and it has fulfilled its role of, of, of being healthy. And so you default towards the extrinsic reward of the really unhealthy food. And so you vicariously fulfilled your goal just by considering the option of healthy food. And it's crazy, it's ridiculous that we behave that way, but the science was very clear that when you when you give a healthy option among a ton of unhealthy options, we're going to more likely pick the unhealthy option.
0: Yeah, and that study certainly proves that out. I mean, it's it was just amazing to read that. And another one that you cite, I love your book because you give lots of great examples. Um, you use tons of good stories. You can tell that you've done all the research in this book. You speak about... Um, a great way that vitamin water attracted the attention of their audience with a Facebook app called Flavor Creator. Now, obviously, there's a lot of this going out on there. There's Kickstarters and Indiegogo, and I just came from a, uh, an Illuminate film festival where the, the actual producers and directors and people are trying to capture attention today of people of their story. Um, tell the story and the outcome of the company on vitamin water.
1: So vitamin water was one of the more recent ones, and that's a big thing to remember. It was a, it, not recent. It was one of the more the older it was one of ones. The early pioneers of it. Yeah, yeah it was exactly. one of the pioneers. Yeah. And so what vitamin water did was um, they validated their audience by um, – they had this app where you or your their audience could help them create the mixed flavor of vitamin water. And it wasn't just like people could suggest different flavor combinations, different names, colors, all of those sorts of things. And it was a whole creator you could share with friends and have them vote it up. And it was a big deal because um, they were show, clearly showing to their audience, we want care about your opinion and what you want, and we trust you. And so they let their audience go nuts on this. And eventually their audience honed um, in on a flavor called Connect, which was based off Facebook. And it was a rousing success. They had a whole bunch of people coming in making flavors, sharing with friends. It was, it was viral for its time. And as a result, they got more sales than they had. Um, and vitamin water continued to rise in popularity. And this was kind of, you know, this is more common now, but no one had really done such a thing on the internet or on social channels until vitamin water and a few of these others had really done it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you can see the same effect with Kickstarter today and Indiegogo today, because if you think about Kickstarter, it's basically e commerce with some rewards, but they make you feel like you are intrinsically involved, that you have the capability to support uh, a young entrepreneur or a young product and make it succeed. And that deeper level of connection and that deeper level of validation makes for a much stronger form of attention.
0: Yeah, and it it really is uh, one of the early stories. And obviously, since 2009, the media and the platforms that people can build on to actually capture the attention and engage the audience. and get them uh, involved in the actual development um, is, is truly phenomenal. Um, I think Eric Reyes just raised $533,000 for his next book um, as a result of doing a, a Kickstarter campaign, but the way he did it was, was brilliant. Um, now, I do a lot of nonprofit work. I consult to nonprofits, and I'm on several nonprofit charity boards. Um, I enjoy giving back to the community. And one of the challenges nonprofits always have is capturing the attention. But one of the best ones that I've ever seen out there is Charity Water. Um, Can you explain, you know, uh, and and what would you do to help a nonprofit be better positioned to captivate their audience? Because they all seem to be struggling with it because they're struggling for the same dollars.
1: So... And I've had this chance to talk with a lot of charities and both, you know, successful, not successful, or ones that are up and coming. And there's a couple of things to think about. One I talk about in the book, and I want to talk about it especially, is the Rokia effect, which is uh, when charities try to make their appeal to potential donors, you can typically go one of two ways. One is using IQ, using statistics, using data to prove your points. Talking and others using emotional appeal and storytelling, and storytelling always trumps. And there was a study that what they did was they would give subjects uh, a chance to donate between one and five dollars to uh, Save the Children type charity, and they give them one of two stories as part of it. And one story would be the statistics of um, how many people are starving in Zambia and uh, the results of those of that starvation, and the other was a story of a girl named Rokia and how. Rokia was personally starving and couldn't go to school because she didn't have food, she had to work for the family, and your money would go directly to support her. And they found that people made significantly more donations to the Rokia story than the statistics story, and even still more to the Rokia story than the story that had both Rokia and the statistics. And that's because we can't empathize with statistics, and we feel like when we're told like 8 billion people are starving, We, our individual dollar won't help versus the story about a Rokia and exemplifies the problem and we can put ourselves in that person's shoe. It's the same kind of reason why a bat kid gets so popular because it's that one individual story. And so you need to, when you're trying to prove a point and try to get people to donate, don't just use statistics. Find a clear case example that exemplifies your point, the story, the emotional story to utilize, and that's going to be a far more effective pitch if you do that. Uh, and that's just one of a bunch of different ways. A lot of it really kind of comes down to that storytelling. Um, the, one of my um, favorite charities that does a really good job of this is Charity Water. Mm-hmm. And what they do is a fantastic job of, all their imagery is very positive. They don't show you know, the starvation. They show a positive image of what happens when you give clean water to a, children, to a child. And they tell individual stories, and what happens is when you donate, you get the individual story of that individual well sent to you over the course of months as it's being built, and they show you how it's being built, and they show you um, who you're impacting, and you get letters from the people who who um, got the well. And that's mm-hmm. a really powerful experience, I've found. Well, it's, it's, it's extremely powerful, and that's something that I wish more charities emulated.
0: Well, yeah, and as I mentioned, you've got this, you're moving from more of a... Um, an experience even to a transformation because I believe that the consumers out there today Uh, especially millennial group, they want to make a difference. I'm not saying baby boomers don't. I'm not saying these other groups don't. They all want to make a difference, and all of my listeners want to make a difference. But they want to get engaged. They want to be part of it. And what Charity Water does so well is to actually pull them in through the process, even using the Internet through the pictures, the videos, and so on. Um, Now, you you operate, uh, or you're the co-founder of this Dominate Fund, and you obviously work with a lot of venture capitalists and a lot of startups, and there's a ton of competition out there. Um, what advice would you give for someone listening today who has a great idea, who's trying to capture the attention of the audience? Um, you know, what would you tell them? I mean, you obviously are consulting lots of these kinds of firms. All right,
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna pick a couple of things. I mean. For The the first thing is to um, – it, it depends on whether you're trying to get initial traction or you're trying to keep the audience you have. And, you know, when I'm with these startups, I talk to them on the marketing side, finding that they're disruptive, you know, that violates their people's expectations that will put them on the map that will get people talking or listening. And I also talk to them about the press side and the power of press. But most people pitch press wrong. and They write 10-paragraph emails and cold emails. And I talk about the reputation trigger and how – Um, having that strong introduction from a um, notable investor or advisor or customer is significantly more powerful than having no introduction at all or or writing that 10-paragraph email. And I talked to them about these sort of things, and I also talked to them about how to build, once you have a person on your website, how to build the loyalty system on your your program. And one piece of advice on that side is um, don't, Incentives, if you're trying to keep people on your site, incentives are the least effective type of reward. You should try to use something called post-action rewards, which is giving people a reward after they perform an action you want them to take with, as a surprise without them knowing. Um, and the research shows when you surprise people with a reward, they're more likely to come back and to have a positive opinion of that product or that program. And so that, those are just a like few kind of little things. And the disruption trigger side... It just starts with something a little different. Maybe it's a different color scheme. Maybe it's a different way of approaching the problem. Maybe it's um, a different wording than everyone else does. Maybe it's a, a different offer. But that, that something that stands out along with, you know, using the reputation trigger when it comes to press using the reward trigger when it comes to building your product all combines to make something that will be more appealing.
0: It's a it's a, in, such an interesting science, and I could speak to you all day about this. And I'm gonna kind of wrap up our interview, Ben. With um, you had an entrepreneur mentor by the name of Mark, Achler is it Archler, and it's uh, Mark Ackler, yeah, Ackler. and it's uh, Kennesoft. And I the story was great. What I loved about it is it really didn't use at this point a lot of technology, and, and you conclude the book with this, and it was a great attention-getter, what what they did, and a surprising number of CEOs that actually responded to it. Um, tell this great story, because you really do kind of wrap it up, and I just thought it was just, you know, the lowest use of technology, but the highest response I think someone had ever had. Yeah,
1: uh... so... Um, Mark Ackler is one of, my two, one of my entrepreneurial mentors who owns Detroit Heinecrop. And Mark is the founder of Math Ventures and previously was the SVP of Redbox. And before that was the president of Kinesoft, which um, helped create DirectX, which is what it's known for. But when they were first trying to promote DirectX, uh, it was under a different name then, and trying to promote their engine, um, they had a hard time getting the attention of you know, game execs and console execs. And so what they did was they made wedding invitations that um, were inviting them to the um, marriage of uh, PC gaming and console gaming. And it was clever, it was kitschy, and when you see a wedding invitation, most people will immediately open it because of the significance of a wedding invitation. And so they harnessed that, people opened it, it was a unique proposition, people sat down, and when they sat down with them, they were able to sell them, and they got a Nine, they got nearly 90, nearly 100 percent response rate. I think 97 percent from execs when they got these wedding invitations. It was unique. It was disruptive. It was um, it re, people reacted automatically and they responded. And it was it helped you know turn it helped kinsoft grow.
0: Yeah. It it it. I think out of 90-something, they got 70 interviews with these CEOs, or a little more than that, which is just astounding when you look at the actual response rate to that wedding invitation saying these two platforms are being married, right? That was what it was all about. Um, So it was was a great story, a great way to kind of conclude your book. If you were to tell our listeners today out there now that are listening about Captivology – What's one thing you'd like to leave them with or a couple things you'd like to leave them with to say, hey, no matter if you're a small entrepreneur or an individual or somebody who's going to basically pick up this book, what are the three key points that you think they're going to take away? I took a ton away from this book, but what would you like to leave them with?
1: I'm I'm going to leave them with different points than maybe normal, because I think we've gone through plenty of advice in terms of specifically how to capture attention, and of course the book is a great place to get way more. But um, the first one I want to make clear is that this is not a book for extroverts. This is a book for anybody, and one of the first people I interviewed for the book was Susan Cain, who's the author of the best-selling book, Quiet, and what I wanted to make sure I did was write a book that was applicable to anybody, because um, introverts need to capture attention just as much as extroverts. Um, But introverts don't want to get attention for themselves. They're trying to get attention for their art, their projects, their ideas, their public speaking. And so um, Captivology is written in such a way where it's not about me, me, me attention. Um, It's about how do you get attention for that passion that you have? And it's okay to have it, to garner attention for a passion for a project because that's what we have to do in the modern era. And on a related note, um, the masters of attention, you know, your Bill Gates and Sheryl Sandbergs, they don't try to get attention for themselves. They try to get attention for their projects and their passions and ideas. And we resonate stronger with that and we pay attention to that. And so you don't need to be waving around and waving around and screaming to get attention. You could do it quietly, you could do it methodically, you could do it for something that's greater than yourself. And that's the strongest type of attention. And that's the, what I think is really important. is Finding that passion that you have and being and being knowing that it's okay to get attention for it, because if you don't, it, be, we have so many amazing people in history who are discovered long after they die, like Mendel um, and a whole bunch of others, and some who probably have never been discovered as a fact of not knowing how to capture attention. And I want to prevent that, and I hope that bodies will take those things away.
0: Great great wisdom, uh, Ben. I I really enjoyed the book immensely. I enjoyed the fact that you gave lots of great stories. And for my listeners, um, we've been on with Ben Parr. The book is called Captivology, The Science of Capturing People's Attention. Um, We will put links to Ben's website in the blog entry, as well as links to a couple of the YouTube videos. Facebook page and any social media that obviously Ben is using to capture his own attention around the book Uh, Ben, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with me today uh, to inform my listeners about how to better capture attention, but even more importantly understanding the science behind capturing attention Thanks for being on with us
1: Thanks for having me